The blood covenant is one of a number of covenants in the Bible. And the purpose of a covenant, a covenant as we talked about the first week, is more than a contract. A contract is where two parties exchange a promise. And so the strength of that contract is only as good as the, as the promises, as the word of those that are promised. But a covenant is where something is pledged along with the promises to give it greater certainty. And so years ago in other, other cultures, tribes would enter into covenants with each other for convenience and for protection. Uh, we talked about uh, Stanley and Livingston going through different parts of Africa, experienced some of these blood covenants. And there are, co- there are various covenants in the Bible. But the covenants that's the most important for us to understand is a covenant that God entered into a- with Abraham, and it's a blood covenant. A blood covenant is the highest type of covenant because in a blood covenant, what's pledged to back up your word is your life. And the very essence of a blood covenant is the two parties or two tribes or families, whatever it is, they become joined together and they become one. They develop a new identity. So that means all their assets and liabilities of one group to the covenant are pledged to the other group. So my assets, so when, and, and, uh, marriage is, is a blood covenant. So when we got married, everything I have then became Anita's. All my assets were, were not many and my liabilities, which were not financial, but there was a lot of baggage I brought into the marriage, that all became hers, and she now had inherited that and the other way around. So that's, that's the essence of a covenant, is to become one. That's so important. Because then we began to look at God entered into a covenant with man. And we saw God enter into, enter into it with Abraham, who was then Abram, because God wanted Abram to have confidence that the promise God made to him, that Abraham could understand it in the terms that he was used to. So we saw in Genesis uh, chapter 12 that God entered into a covenant with Abraham and then it goes through several chapters, chapter 12, then chapter 15, and then chapter 17 is the process of entering into it. So that Abraham would have a certainty of knowing that God was, ba- and the proof of that is in Genesis 22 when the God of this covenant asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son, and Abraham's willing to do it because he trusts God that no matter what actually happens, that son will somehow be given back to him because God had made a promise to him back in Genesis chapter 15. And so we saw that. Then we looked at there was a process by which they would go through to enter into the covenant, and that process was a physical action that was intended to instill in their senses the gravity and significance of what they were actually entering into, which is why we have... solemn ceremonies. Now, now, so a marriage ceremony is not just a party. There's a reason why we get people together. There's a reason why we have a ceremony like that to get it in the couple's mind that you're make, doing something serious and what you're doing is important. Now, most couples don't get that. They find out later on what they did. It's later on they find out, I did? <laughs> I said I do that day, but I did? <laughs> is that what I did? And then you've got to choose to live it out. So we looked at various these, uh, things that the, they exchanged names, that represented exchange of identity. They would often exchange robes or some outer garment because that was also part of their identity. They would exchange weapons, which was a pledge that my strength is now available to your strength. They would exchange gifts sometimes. Then there was a, there was a, a ceremony they would go through where they would take animals and they would split them down the middle, right down the middle, which, and then they would, the, the ones that were entering into the covenant 
lock arms and walk through that, those divided animals in a figure eight pattern. And we said that that represented the eternity of a figure eight represents it's a never ending covenant. And in the middle of it, you're walking through this bloody mess where those two parts of the animal have been separated. Very bloody ceremony, but it was designed to ingrain in their senses the blood because the blood represents life. We saw how God did that in Genesis 15 with Abraham. And then what we began to look at several weeks ago, what does it mean that God's in covenant with man? And we talked about that means that the very aspects now man has a relationship with God the same kind. So, So man is now one with God. And we'll look at that more next week. We saw that all of, God, all of God's assets are now available to us. Every, he's, Romans 8.31, he's held nothing back. If he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? That, that not always all his assets are ours, his liabilities are ours. Well, what liabilities does God have? Souls are his liabilities. And so that's now our liability, the heart of God for souls and for people that are hurting to rescue and to redeem but also all our liabilities are now God's. But all our assets are now God's. People say, well, I don't, tithing's not in the, in the New Testament. No, it's stricter in the New Testament. Everything belongs to God in the New Testament. We just get the tithe, but the, all of it is God's. We are stu- owners of nothing and stewards of everything. So with all of that, what we're going to begin to look at tonight, tonight and then I believe we'll finish it next week, we're going to look at some co- concepts which I call covenant concepts. And these are help us now to apply what we've learned to where we are, to our faith and to our walk with God. And we're going to take some of the things that we've learned tonight, the way that, that men entered into covenant, and we're going to begin to apply them to things you and I are familiar with. So the first covenant con- concept we're going to look at is the covenant seal. If you remember, one of the most important parts of entering into a covenant is they were literally the word bereath in Hebrew means cutting of a covenant or cutting of the body. So one of the most important parts of the ceremony of entering a covenant is they would cut their body somewhere, often on their forehead, sometimes on their chest, sometimes on the palm of their hand or their wrist. That had two purposes. It caused blood to flow. And the flowing of blood meant it was a blood covenant. I'm giving up of my life to you or for you. Sometimes they would exchange the blood by tying their hands together or wherever the cut was so that my blood would now flow in your veins. So we would symbolize one life together. But the second aspect of it is it left a scar and a mark. And that scar was known as the seal or the sign of the covenant. Remember early on I talked to you about just a silly example of you at the little tribe of the pygmies and you're there in covenant with the, the Watusi warrior tribes, the seven-footers, and, and, and they've cut their hands as the sign of this covenant because they put their hands together as blood brothers. And now the little pygmies are going down on a, on a trail somewhere and these guys go to jump them and the pygmy holds up his hand with this mark in it and these guys that are attaching are going to they're in covenant with somebody, I better find out who they're in covenant with because I'm not just attacking that little guy, I'm attacking whoever they're in covenant with. And we saw that as we went through stories the last several weeks of of David and Goliath because David, the, the Israel army, saw that it was them in a war with the Philistines. 
and Goliath was threatening the army of Saul. But David shows up and looks at it through the eyes of a covenant and says, no, 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 we're in covenant with the living God. So when they come against us, they've come against, they've defied, it was the word of you, you've defied the army that belongs to the living God. And then David says to him, who are you, the uncircumcised Philistine? Because the mark of the covenant that God entered into with Abraham was to be circumcised on the eighth day, every male on the eighth day in the flesh of their foreskin. We're going to see that tonight. So what we're going to look at tonight, the first concept, is the cutting, is the covenant seal, S-E-A-L. So what's the significance of a seal or something? Well, one of the signs of it, one of the meanings of a seal is it's a sign, it's a finished transaction. Isn't that the term we use? Sign, sealed, and delivered, which means it's done. One of the things that they used to do with documents before, and I talked about this a little bit when we went through the steps of a covenant, is, is when a, a formal document would be issued by a king or somebody in authority, they would take poor wax, it's called sealing wax, and then they would take their signet ring, their sign ring, and they would imprint it on that soft wax, and as it hardened, there would be that unique imprint of the person that signed the document. And that meant that was proof beyond just the signature that this was authentic. And even at law, we have documents that are under seal, and that has a significance. I won't go back over all that meant. So a seal... In, in, a, in a legal sense, means a sign that something's finished, that it's over, that it's official, it's, a, it's completion. It also means that something's closed, there's a seal on a contract. It's a sign of approval. So when that king stamped that, that was his mark of approval, mark of acceptance. In fact, even nowadays, I don't know if they still do this, but you could pick up, if you went to the butcher shop, you could get a cut of meat, and if it was stamped with USGA approval, you know that the government, for whatever that was worth, had approved the quality of that meat. It was a sign of the government's approval of that. It's also a sign of security, because one of the things they do with that meat now, they don't just leave it out, they shrink wrap it. We shrink wrap everything. You buy something at the hardware store. I bought something. I forgot what it was the other day. Oh, it was a little flash drive. I couldn't get the thing open. I mean, it took industrial scissors to cut the thing open because this stuff is sealed so much. Well, when you go to buy meat at the grocery store, they don't just have it laying out the way they used to. They have as they take it in the back, they put it on that plastic thing, then they put this cellophane over it, and they suck the air out and it wraps it around it wraps it around the meat and the purpose of that seal is to keep out the contaminants so a seal not only marks it's done marks it's complete marks it's acceptance but a seal also means it it, it covers it and protects it and keeps out the contaminants it's a sign of ownership like the brand on cattle it's a sign of ownership. It means that particular cow belongs to a particular owner, and it's that owner's responsibility. And so when God entered into a covenant with Abraham, one of the things was to enter in, to give Abraham a seal or a sign or a mark of that covenant, and that was the rite of circumcision. So in Genesis 17.10, God says, This is my covenant 
which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It's a sign of God's ownership of Israel. It's a mark that God is in covenant with Israel. So again, when David facing Goliath, looking at Goliath and talking to the army, says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He's not making a hygiene comment about Goliath. He's talking about the fact that I don't care how big he is, he has no covenant with God, and we have a covenant with God. We talked then, David learned to look at circumstances through the eyes of covenant and not through the natural circumstances. This, now, but that's in the Old Testament. So we're in the New Testament. We're in what we'll see later is the fulfillment of that com- covenant with Abraham. But what's the seal of our covenant? The Old Testament uh, uh, types and shadows were physical things that, that were represented spiritual principles. So the, uh, the rite of circumcision, physical cutting of the male foreskin is a physical sign of some spiritual sign that's been given to us as the seal of the mark of the covenant, and that's the Holy Spirit. The seal, the covenant seal of our covenant with God through Christ is the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2.11 In Him, in Christ, you were also circumcised, not physically, but with a circumcision made without the hands by the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh. So instead of putting off a piece of flesh, it was the putting off of flesh itself and the power of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Ephesians 1.13 In Him who you trusted after you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit a promise. That verse was so important to me when I first got saved. Because I was one of many people that when you first got saved, that first few days were glorious. I knew something had happened. I knew I was a different person. But after a few weeks it began to wear off, or at least the experience of it. And I would have times and I was that real? Am I really saved? And I was at that point reading through Ephesians every night. And I got to this verse, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit quickened in me, which is a sign I was saved. This verse, because I knew, he said, in whom you trusted, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I knew someone was now inside of me opening this Bible up to me. Because before this, I couldn't understand a word I was reading. And it wasn't like I didn't, didn't have some intelligence and couldn't read things. I could read the law, but this book didn't mean anything. And all of a sudden, in one night, it just opens up and becomes alive to me. I knew it wasn't because I suddenly became smart. It's because the author was now living in me. So that was proof to me that I was now saved, that I was now in Christ. So... Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.22 says, Now He established you with Christ and anointed you as God, who sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. If you could look into the spirit realm, you would see you're marked spiritually by the Holy Spirit's presence in you. He is God's mark on you. It's not a physical mark, it's a spiritual mark. The things in the old covenant that were physical in the new covenant are spiritual, which is far more important because they are eternal. The next significance of the Holy Spirit, He's our seal. 
It's the sign of the completed transaction. It's a sign that you belong to Christ. John 19.30, Jesus on the cross, I talked about this on Easter, said, it is finished. And the Greek word that's used there is tetelestai. And it's in the perfect tense in Greek, which means the perfect tense in Greek means it's it's a discrete act done once that has a continuing effect forever. So it's one act that has a continuing effect forever. That's the tense of that verb. It is finished. It, it, it mean, that word means it's done. It's over. It was a battle cry. Kind of like, the, I mentioned this on Easter, for those of you that are old Celtics fans, when Red Auerbach was the coach, he knew when the, when the, when the, he knew when the Celtics had won, even though there were maybe five minutes left on the clock, and he had, a, I guess they can't do it anymore, he would pull out a victory cigar and light it up. That told his team he knew it was over. It told the other team he knew it was over, and it told the fans he knew it was over. When Jesus yelled at Telestai, he's saying the battle is over. And we don't have time to go into all that. You can go back and listen again to the message on Easter Sunday. The next thing this sign means, His presence in us is a sign of God's approval. A seal on something is a sign of approval. It's a sign it's accepted. The Spirit of God, this is so important, the Holy Spirit in you is a sign of your approval. God approves of you. Uh, in Luke chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized in the, in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and this is one of the places where you see all three parts of the Godhead. The Son is physically present, and He goes down into the river, and He comes up, and it says the Holy Spirit descends upon Him in bodily form like a dove. I don't believe it was this white dove floating down. I believe it descended the way a dove would come down. That he didn't go come like a crashing rocket down. He gently settled upon Jesus. And then the Father said, listen carefully. So the, the, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. The Spirit of God has now descended upon him. And now the Father speaks out of heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, so he belongs to me. In Him, I am well pleased. So the Spirit of God upon the Son was a sign to everyone that this man belonged to Him as His Son and that the Father was well pleased with Him. Hold on to that thought. Galatians 4, verse 6 says, And because you are sons because you are sons because you are sons it's not a coincidence this happened this happens because you are sons God has sent forth his spirit into your hearts crying Abba Father next verse therefore you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir of God through Christ. Go back to verse 6. So just as the Spirit coming upon Jesus was the Father's sign that Jesus was His Son and belonged to Him and He was well pleased with Him, in the same way, God sending His Spirit to live in you is a sign that you are His child and you belong to Him and that He's well pleased with you whether you are or not 
doesn't matter. The Spirit in you is a son. I don't know why you're not excited about that. That's exciting. God's pleased with you. We get, have trouble with it. Yeah, but I know what I'm like. Yeah, God knows what you're like too, but He's not pleased with you because of what you're like. He's pleased with you because He loves you. He's pleased with you because of what He's doing in you, not what you're doing with you. And the Holy Spirit in you is the proof that you belong to Him. His presence in us means we're secure in our covenant. Secure means no one, you can, take, no one can take you out of it. 1 John 5.18 says, He who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. I struggled with this verse when I was studying this today, because what this verse really does say, it doesn't make sense the way this New King James... Because uh, it says, Whoever is born of God does not sin, but, who, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. That's not comforting if I'm keeping myself. Because I know what kind of job I'm keeping myself. But there are other translations says, He who is born of God, referring to the Spirit, keeps him. So the one that keeps you in, in, the, in God, the one that keeps you in Christ, is the Spirit in you. When you wander off, He is God's presence. One of things we're going to get to on Sundays, it's going to be a while down the road, is we're going to spend some time looking at the fact that when you come to Christ, you are joined to Him. You don't just belong to Him. Because I can belong, we've got two of our kids that belong to us, but one of them's in Nashville and the other's in L.A. They belong to us, but they're not here. You don't belong to Jesus and He's in heaven and you're down here. You're joined to Him. I've got to be careful because I'll get ahead of myself with that. That has absolutely life-changing implications for you. And we're going to look at all the promises that talk about who you are in Christ, what God has done for you in Christ, all the things, and what it means to be in Christ. It doesn't mean you've joined a religion. It doesn't mean you've joined a family. It means you have been joined to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God. So whatever He is, you are, because He's joined to you. Boy, you got it. (laughs) That's because I've been preaching it to you. It takes a while to get that. God is protecting us from being... The devil cannot just snatch you away. So many people are afraid of the devil. Oh, the devil's going to get me. Well, then get saved. In order for him to get you, he's got to get Christ because you're in him. You're secure in Him. Now, I'm not getting into whether you can walk away. I'm saying nobody can take you away from Him. The devil, if the devil's all that powerful, the most crucial thing he would have done is stop you from getting saved. If he couldn't stop you from getting saved, how can he take you away from Christ? Now, he can trick you into wandering off, but he can't force you. He does not have that authority over you. Colossians 1.13 says, You were delivered... You were delivered from the domain, the dominion, the authority, the power of darkness, and you were transferred over into the kingdom of His beloved Son. I'm preaching better than you're answering. <laughs> Colossians 17:15. Jesus prayed to His Father, Keep them 
from the evil one. I don't know about you, but I believe God answers Jesus' prayers. John 6, 39 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me, I lose none of them, but raise them up on the last day. And finally, the Spirit in us is the sign that we belong to the Father. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for his written curse that is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that Christ Jesus in order that in Christ Jesus there it is, it's all over the place the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law for a reason why? so that the blessing that God gave to Abraham under the covenant might come upon the Gentiles in Christ and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the ultimate promise that God made, covenant promise that God made, was that He would come and dwell in us by His Spirit. Second Peter, the, the Spirit in us is the culmination of God's pledge to be one with us through the covenant. First Peter 2 verses 9 and through 11. We are a peculiar people, boy, isn't that true? But the word peculiar there, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a special people, the New King James says. Other translations say a peculiar people. The word peculiar there doesn't mean weird, it means unique. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That word means new species of being that never existed before. Why? Because it's God joined to man. It's not good men and it's not a great God. It's now God and man joined together. That's a new species of being that never existed before. A peculiar people, a special, unique people. Why? That you might proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That mark on us of the Spirit means that we are peculiar or special or unique to God. It's His own Spirit He gives you. This hit me one day. God did not put in me a different spirit than He put in Jesus. God did not put in me a watered-down version of the spirit that He put in Jesus. Romans 8, 11 says, If the same spirit, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, He will quicken your mortal body, bring it alive. The same Spirit that dwelled in Christ. You out there tonight? All right, okay, boy. This is good stuff. Romans 8, 16. And the Spirit Himself bears witness that we are children of God. The presence of the Spirit in you bears witness to the world that you belong to God. The proof that you belong to God, the proof that you're His child, the proof that He's pleased to you is not whether you see a smile out of heaven. The smile from heaven is the presence of His Spirit in you. Think about that. He's put His own Spirit in you. He didn't send some angel from the other side of heaven to come and live in you. He took His own Spirit, His own precious, by the way, Holy Spirit. And He put His home, sacred, Holy Spirit. It's His Spirit. And He put Him in you and in me. And one of the great weaknesses in the church today is we function and live our lives almost oblivious 
to his presence. And those of us who are aware of him have really never tapped into who it is that's living inside of us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. All right. The next concept we're going to look at, that's the concept, that's the first covenant concept, is the seal or the mark of the covenant. So we looked at it, what it was like when they entered into a covenant in, in, in the old days. We saw how, what, what it was in the covenant that Abraham ever entered into it. And then we looked at what is it in the New Testament terms. Now we're going to look at the covenant meal. And if you remember what we studied back when we looked at this term when they entered into a covenant, the last thing they would do after they had gone through the ceremony is they would, they would, they would, second last thing is they would usually build some kind of memorial and then they would have a meal together. Isn't that just like believers? They'd go to, they'd go to, they'd go out to eat together. Except this meal was not just to fill their bellies. This meal was to, to celebrate the union and the terms of the covenant they just entered into. So listen carefully. The covenant meal was not part of entering the covenant. The covenant was already entered into by the time they got to the meal. The purpose of this meal was to celebrate and remind them and make real to them what they had just entered into. Okay? And so they would have a meal together and typically this meal would include bread, it would include wine, and there's a reason for that. So let's look in Genesis 14, because we looked at how Abraham entered into a covenant with God, or God into a covenant with Abraham, and I don't remember if we had time to go through this. But this is a story that goes into Genesis 14. And what's happened here is, is, is Abraham uh, leaves at God's direction uh, Chaldea, then he leaves Haran, and he goes at God's direction into in the Palestine, Canaan land. And, but he tings, he, he, in, 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 uh, God told him to leave his family and do it, but he brings his nephew Lot along with him because Lot's father has died. And so he brings his nephew Lot along with him and they've now been living in this area and they're both prospering tremendously. And what's happened is Abraham comes to Lot and says, look, we got we to gotta do something here because your, your herdsmen are having issues with my herdsmen. Your cattle are running on the, you know, we're having problems with our, with our livestock together. So, so here's what we're going to, we got to separate. And here's what a man of faith does. This is what a man of covenant does. He says, he looks around and they're, they're on a high country and, and Abraham looks around and there's this beautiful, beautiful fertile valley, green with water flowing through it, much easier to raise cattle, much easier to raise sheep in that area than where they were. But Abraham turns to his nephew Lot and says, you choose what you want. So you can afford to do that when you're in covenant with God and you know God is your source. Abraham walked by faith in his God and the covenant is God. Lot walked by sight. So what Lot does is he looks around and says, I've got to choose between this high country, not a lot of water here, not a lot of product, and i got this beautiful green valley down there. I think I'll choose what looks prosperous. I'll choose what looks easy. I'll cho- choose what looks to me like I can do well with it. And so Abraham says, fine, you take it. And once Lot leaves with all his possessions, God speaks to Abraham. And God says, I want you to look around, and every place where you can walk, I'm going to give you. Notice once God, Abraham put Lot first, when Abraham trusted God under the covenant and not trusted in getting the best deal he could get, 
God came to him and says, I'm going to give you everything you can see and more. The other side of that is located down in this fertile valley are two towns. One Sodom and the other is Gomorrah. So in the midst of what looked so prosperous to his natural eyes was Lot's family's ultimate downfall. That's what happens when we don't walk by faith and walk by sight. So what's happened now is they've separated, and now what's happened is Abraham gets word that three kings have come, and they've raided Sodom and Gomorrah, and they've carried everybody off, including Lot and his family. And so basically Abraham gets a posse together, and they go out and they recover all the goods of Lot and all the goods of the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the king wants to give Abraham spoils of it. And Abraham says, no, I'm not going to say, I don't want anybody to say, they made me rich. God's my source. God's the one that makes me rich. And after all of that, we have this scene. And the king of Sodom went out to meet in the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. And on his return from the defeat of Shedalomer, that guy, the kings who were with him, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bed and wine, and he was the priest of the God Most High. So after all this has happened, and Abraham's refused the spoils, except he gave some to his men to compensate them, this priest shows up named Melchizedek, king of Salem. And he brings bread and wine, and he's a priest of the Most High God. Now we're not going to have time to go there, but, but in Hebrews chapter 7, it tells us that this priest had no father or mother, no beginning and no end. Hmm, that's interesting. But it gets more interesting when you understand in the Hebrew what Melchizedek means. Melke means king of. Zedek means righteousness. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness and also king of Salem, which is shalom or peace. King of righteousness, king of peace, without father, without mother, no beginning, no end, and he's identified as the priest of the God Most High. Most Bible scholars believe that this is known as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Pre-incarnate means before he's born in in Nazareth, before he's born in Bethlehem, to marry and before the word becomes flesh. There are a number of places where it's believed that, G- that Jesus appears uh, in, as the Christ in certain situations. The, he's the fourth man in the fire. Because Nebuchadnezzar says, I thought we only threw three men in there. I see a fourth man, and he looks like he is the appearance of the Son of God. Why? Because it was the Son of God. Because when you stand up and don't compromise, the Son of God will show up. I can't go off and preach that because we'll never get finished tonight. So this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And what did he bring with him? Bread and wine. He's solemnizing the covenant that God's entered into with him. And not only that, a priest is a mediator between God and man. And 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. This priest comes wearing bread and wine to celebrate the covenant between God and Abraham. All right, what's that mean to us? Well, there's another part of this. Exodus chapter 12 is the story of God preparing the, the Israelites to leave Egypt. And after all the plagues, he finally bring, is going to bring the 10th plague, which was the, the destruction of the firstborn in all of Egypt. 
firstborn of the, of the people, the firstborn of the cattle. The, everything that's firstborn male is going to die that night, and it's God's judgment for the sin of, of Egypt, which is essentially pride, and especially the pride of Pharaoh. But God speaks to Moses and tells him, here's what I want you to do. On that night, I want you to take a lamb, and I'm going to walk through this with you. We're not going to read the scriptures, but he, he wanted to prepare a meal. On the tenth day of the month of Nisan, a lamb was to be selected from each family. It was to be inspected or watched for three days, and they had to know, make sure it had no blemish. That wasn't just a mark on it. Make sure that there was no defect in the limbs. Make sure that it didn't have a limp. Make sure that it didn't have some strange noise coming out of it. It had to be perfect. On the fourteenth day, the blood was drawn out of the animal, and the lamb was roasted. And it had to be roasted, and, and, uh, and there was the reason, for, I don't have time to get into it, but it's part of the study of the, new, of the tabernacle. There's a book I wrote on the, on the tabernacle in the wilderness, and it talks about this. The roasting refers to the hot, the heat of, of Calvary, for the heat of the, what Christ went through. And, and uh, they had to eat all of it. And what they couldn't eat, they had to burn. There, had be no, there would be nothing left over. It had to be a complete sacrifice. And then they were to take the blood and they were to take a hyssop branch and they were to smear it on the doorposts and the lentil in the doorposts of, the, of their dwelling places. And then they were to eat bread, bitter herbs, which represented the bitter experience of their Egyptian bondage. And they were to eat unleavened bread. In fact, there could be no leaven, no yeast found in their household. Why? Because yeast represents sin it represents the worst kind of sin, pride. Think about what pride does. Pride puffs you up, but adds no substance. Pride makes you feel bigger, but you're not bigger. You're just filled with hot air. (laughs) And that's what pride does, and that's what leaven represents sin, because sin gets into... You put a little leaven, and Paul talks about this, a little leaven will cause the whole loaf to begin to rise. It will change it. A little sin will begin to have that kind of an effect. And then they were to eat the meal dressed and ready to go. That's a step of faith, that God would fulfill His part of the covenant. Only then, only when they believe the covenant is real for them, would they get the benefit out of it. And then God told them to celebrate this meal every year as a memorial of God's deliverance by the Lamb. And then, thousands years later, the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. At the age of 30, He goes down to the Jordan River to be baptized by His cousin, John the Baptist, and John, by the Spirit, recognizes who he really is. And in John 1, 29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This was the Passover Lamb. So the covenant meal was sharing the bread and wine. The covenant, the, Israel went through this in the covenant with Moses. And now Christ is the covenant Lamb. And we're going to see what the covenant meal is. Jesus, listen to this, Jesus entered Jerusalem, his triumphant entry, on the tenth day of the month of Nisan. The lamb, just as a lamb was carefully inspected for 
defects publicly for three days. Jesus was in public ministry before the world for three years before his crucifixion. When, he, when they bring charges against him, he says, what have I done that I haven't done openly and publicly? So everything he did was opening publicly for three years. Jesus was declared to be without blemish. Pilate declared he found no fault in Jesus, Luke 23, 4. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitude, I find no guilt in this man. So here the highest government official of the earthly power, an official of the highest earthly power on the earth at the time, Rome, declares this man was innocent. This lamb was innocent. It gets better than that. John 11, 47. Let's turn there. Now what's happened is Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and that does it as far as, the, as far as the Pharisees are concerned. That's it. Because now everybody wants to follow him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what are we going to do? For this man works many signs. Shows you how sincere they were. Verse 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone's going to believe in him and the Romans will come and take both away our place and our nation. Verse 49. One of them, Caius, Caiaphas, being chief priest that year. So he's the highest religious official. Said to them... <laughs> You guys know nothing at all, verse 50. Nor do you consider it expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. The high priest says it's fitting for this man to die to save our nation. Now, he didn't mean it the way God meant it. In fact, if you go on and read it, I don't know if they have those verses there. Do you have the next verse? Yeah. Now he did not say this on his own authority by being high priest that year, but he prophesied that Jesus would die for the... This is so good. You've got a backslidden, corrupt high priest speaking out judgment out of a selfish motive and God is supreme there. God is using this backslidden, high corrupt high priest that's corrupt, speaking out of his own selfish motive, and God's using him to prophesy what has to be declared over this sacrifice given for all man. Woo! God knows what he's doing. Wow, it's more exciting than that. So here, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, has been declared. Remember, under, in Exodus 12, he has to be examined starting on the 10th day of Nisan, which is when Christ came into, the, into, the, into Jerusalem. And he then has to be declared uh, uh, unblemished. So the Roman officials declared him innocent. The, the, um, the, the high priest has now declared him a fitting sacrifice. And who else was it? Oh, okay. There's one more. John 14.30. It gets even better. Jesus says here to his disciples, I will no longer talk much more with you, for the ruler of this world, Satan, is coming, and he has nothing in me. So Satan has got no, nothing, no charge against him. The government has no charge against him. The high priest is using him as a sacrifice, and Satan has no charge against him. So he is declared in accordance... This is the fulfillment 
of the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus shared his last memorial Passover with the disciples before the real Passover. And in that meal ended with the breaking of bread and with the drinking of wine. And this is what we celebrate. When Jesus broke bread, he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. He was giving substance to what they had been practicing for hundreds and hundreds of years. Except he's now not saying, This is the, represents the lamb, the Passover lamb. He's saying, I am that Passover lamb. All you've been doing up until now has been rehearsing for this moment when I would step into the shoes of that unblemished lamb and I would bear the sins of this nation. He was that lamb. Luke twenty-two nineteen. When he took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it. He said unto them, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is my covenant, is new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, the tradition of Passover at that time was developed by rabbis, certain rabbis. So what I'm going to share with you does not come from Exodus. It comes from the tradition that had been developed. And the tradition was that a Passover meal, and I guess it's still so, there were four cups. It may be one cup that was used four times, but there were four cups. And at, each, at different stages of the Passover meal, they would fill a cup with wine and they would declare a blessing because each one of these four cups, each one of these four blessings represents one of the promises that God made to Israel that was at, while they were in captivity. They were promises of His deliverance, promises that he, they belonged to Him, promises of their sanctification, promises of their redemption. And each one of these cups represents represents something different. Now, if you research it out, you'll find that there are little variations in how that's used now. But here's a significant thing. So each one of these four represented one of the promises that God made to Israel to redeem them, to sanctify them, which means to set them apart as His own, or to deliver them. The third cup was, 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 was filled and drunk after they finished eating the bread. So... Look what it says. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, So most likely, this was the third cup. Some people believe this was the, called the, the Elijah cup, but it's, it is pretty well under, agreed that this is the cup that speaks to redemption. So Jesus is saying, I am your Redeemer. I am your Messiah. And he drank of that cup took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So this wine that represents God's deliverance, your redemption, which means you're being bought back, this is my blood that's going to buy you back from what Satan has done for you. So Jesus fulfilled the law. He was the last sacrificial lamb. All the others were just shadows of him. We can see that if we look in Roman, in Hebrews chapter 10. Once he was sacrificed, the price was paid. I want to read some verses that they don't have to put up on the screen, but it's in Hebrews chapter 10. I think I read these on Easter, but I'm going to read them now. 
For the law having a shadow of... Hebrews 10.1 For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of things could never by these same sacrifices which they offered continually year by year make those who approached perfect. For then they would cease to be offered. For the worshippers once purified would no longer have a consciousness of sins, but in those sacrifices there remains a reminder of sin year after year. That's why what religion does is have you continue to make sacrifices for your sin, to keep atoning for your sin, to keep paying for your sin, because what it does, it keeps rubbing your nose in your sin instead of having you, and that never gets us free. That never gets us free. But let's go over to verse 12. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being, sacrificed, those who are being sanctified. Down to verse 19. Therefore, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He consecrated for us through the, the veil, that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The real Passover on the cross celebrated, the real Passover, which was this meal that Christ entered into, celebrated the actual covenant, cutting of a new and better version of the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that we have with Christ is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was a preview. It was a foreshadowing until Christ could come who would actually see... Because Abraham, we went through it, Abraham did not physically cut the covenant with God. When they walked, when Abraham had to have a vision, where where the the smoking lamp and the and the fire uh, walk through through, but Christ is actually cutting a covenant with God the Father. Next week you're going to see why that is so life changing for you. So don't miss next week. Instead of being done by symbolic meals, it was now done by the real body and the real blood of God's own Son. This covenant is the fulfillment of all that the Abrahamic covenant led to. And our communion that we celebrate is the celebration of this new covenant meal. The bread represents Jesus' broken body. It signifies all that His death was intended to accomplish for us. It also signifies the victory over the limits of flesh. By the tearing of His flesh, we have access to God. I just read that to you. His flesh makes us holy. We've been made holy through Colossians 1.21, through His flesh. The fruit of the vine represents His blood, His life that cleanses. So communion is a celebration of the actual union that we have with God. And if you take the word communion, I didn't do a slide to do that, it's broken up into two parts. There's the prefix com, C-O-M, and the last part, union. And the prefix com comes from a Latin prefix, C-U-M, which means with. So communion means celebration of your union with whoever you're celebrating it. 
So communion is a celebration of that union. The Greek word that's used is koinonia, which means a fellowship. It doesn't mean fellowship by sitting around and having a sandwich together. It means fellowship, it means you're sharing something, going through something together. Years ago, back in the 70s, there was a, there was a, a, a power outage through the whole Northeast. The power grid in Niagara Power Grid Something went haywire, and literally it went... I was in the middle of it. I was in upstate New York in college at the time. But there were people that entered into an elevator because it happened in rush hour. They stepped in their elevator, figuring they were going to take a 20-second ride to the bottom, and I don't remember how many hours. Six hours later, they got out. They got into that elevator with a bunch of strangers. But I guarantee you, when they got out, they weren't strangers because they went through something together. There was a TV series done a year ago called The Band of Brothers, years ago, called The Band of Brothers, about soldiers that went through World War II together and the bonding together that that makes. My uncle, I had an uncle that was a, that was a, a, a deck officer on, on, a, on a destroyer during World War II that was sunk. And, and every year there was a reunion. I mean, 50 years later, there's a reunion. There weren't, the more they went, the fewer showed up but they kept in communication with each other. Why? Because they'd been through an experience together that binded them together where they had, say, shared something that nobody else could be part of. And sure, over the years, the memory of it fades. But see, that's why we celebrate it together, because we rehearse it so that that union becomes more and more real to us. So I hope you see that this covenant meal that we share together when we have communion, it's not just some ritual we throw it at the end of a service. This is why from time to time I'll do a message on it. This is why a number of years ago I stopped doing it on a regular basis because it was coming so routine we just took it for granted. And even my attitude was, well, oh, we've got to squeeze it in at the end. And that's the wrong attitude to have. It's celebrating this covenant with a covenant meal that we have entered into and that Christ has entered into us and celebrated. Next week we're going to look at uh, another aspect of this, another covenant, and it's called the covenant heads, and it will make it will make the relationship that you have with God become so vivid and so real that if you really hear it in your heart, it will change your relationship with God. That ought to get you back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for all that you've done in this covenant. And we just continue to ask you and trust you that as we meditate on these things and as we look in our Bible and as we remember the things that we've heard tonight, that your Spirit will bring them back to our remembrance. And that by your Spirit, the words that have been sown in our heart, the seed that's sown in our heart tonight, will begin to take root and will begin to bear a harvest, a harvest of the realization of the covenant, the reality of the covenant, the power of that covenant that we have every day that we walk in with you. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.